Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. As always on Thursdays, Dwayne Generalissimo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show is here. He's master of the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. Troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. I'm a member, and I was on last night with Dwayne, and we're actually going to do something that we occasionally do. We're going to pick up on a, on, a, on a topic that we were, spent almost the whole night discussing yesterday, which was... Um, Joe Biden's no good, horrible, lousy uh, press conference and the full on White House spin team, the all star spin team that had to come on afterwards to try to distract people from the fact that Joe Biden's an idiot. Um, Dwayne. <laughs> and, and, and unsuccessfully so. Look, you know, to, to, to people that are that are kind of newbies to what the, the stick that Ed and I do. You know, I've got my podcast. He's got his podcast. I'm a guest on his show once a week. He's a guest on my show once a week. Normally, I get to go first on a Wednesday night. Ned comes on my show in the universe, and we do, you know, whatever we do. And I usually have a bazillion cuts. And it's always best if I, um, if if Ed hasn't seen him or heard him, and I just kind of hit him on the fly and get, just get the natural reaction to it. And, um, you know, I described it as, as seeing an accident scene. And, and this was the political equivalent of, of rubbernecking, uh, a really spectacular wreck. Not just Joe Biden's press conference, which was really quite, quite grisly, uh, but the, the attempted cleanup, which was even worse. Uh, so, so we covered all that. And at the end of it, Ed was saying if there was anything good as a takeaway, it's that the media seems to be pushing back and not accept, uh, not just accepting the, 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 the spin blindly like they did the first year and a half of Biden's administration. Like the, the poll numbers have finally resulted in the media saying, you're on your own. I'm not, even sure it's, I'm not even sure it's the poll numbers. I mean, it's the fact that this played out right in front of them on camera. They had no choice. But I mean... You and I discussed this Joe, last night too. Look, Whose broad idea was it to put Joe Biden on a Zoom call in front of reporters uh, with the CEOs of the uh, infant see, formula uh, manufacturers? It's still, it's still inexplicable to me why they thought this was a good idea or who who thought it was a good idea. Look, um, there are there are politicians in our lifetime that can do a Jedi mind trick. Um, Lord knows that uh, uh, Bill, Bill Clinton, Clinton, Bill Clinton was past master. Bill, Bill, Billy, Billy Jeff could do a Jedi mind. Wait, 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 wait. wait. The- let me, let me, let me I, I did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> I, I, I did not have sex with that woman. And, and I just need to get back to. I, I just need to get, the work for the. I just need to get American back to doing the work of the American people. This I, is this I is. I didn't, <laughs> he, you know, he never did point. He did. The, he always. Did yeah, 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 yeah. This is. The, this is not the sex scandal that you think it is. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, and he was yes, good yes. at it. It worked. Everybody, now, went off, everybody went off and said, "Oh, Republicans are just obsessed with sex." <laughs> Barack, Barack Obama, God love him. He at least had some charisma. He would try to do a a uh, a Jedi mind trick. Uh, you know, he would do a beer summits. He would try to change the narrative all the time. You know that, and he would, you know, have that that you know big toothy grin and 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 try to you know folks and. And, and, and shift the narrative. And he was not bad at it. Donald Trump would try to, you know, beat you into submission into doing a Jedi mind trick, you know, you know, he, yeah, probably less effective, probably a lot less effectively though. I mean, <laughs> Joe, but when Joe Biden literally hears an executive 
from one of the baby uh, formula two of them manufacturers. There was two of them. Two of, two of them, but one of them specifically from Perigo, who tells him, "Well, sir, as soon as the Abbott plant went down, we knew immediately, like that day, that it was going to be a problem. We started preparing as it were a problem." And we contacted the FDA, and we have been we have been talking to the FDA weekly ever since about what a problem this was going to be. Immediately, immediately, yeah, like, I mean, if not Joe sooner, Biden, immediately. Yeah, Joe Biden asked the question. Well, you know, you know, you know, how long did it take you guys to realize that this was going to be a a major problem? Apparently, hoping to hear it. Well, we didn't really think it was going to be a big problem until April or or May. Instead, they said. Oh yeah, we knew about it right away. We've been talking to the FDA about we it ever since they told your, us about it. Your HHS secretary knew about it. The FDA commissioner knew about it. Everybody that it was in our chain of command dealing with the government knew about it. Apparently, everybody knew about it, sir, except you. Whole of government. And, <laughs> and and so and so at the end of this, you know, Joe Biden then immediately turns to the to the media who watched this clown car and he he tries to say. Well, I met with the CEOs uh, right from the very beginning on this. No, you didn't. It just—it's just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's just totally non, uh, nonsensical. And and he says uh, nobody could have predicted this happening. Well, actually, you just got told. We, we are in the meet. We just watched you. you just <laughs> and we and just watched you get told that everybody everybody on that zoom call predicted it was going to happen well and and why because it had we already had shortages at that point yes. the new york times reported on it in october this is before the fda even made it out to the abbott facility his uh, hhs secretary javier bacaria had had, had had told cnn last month that yeah we knew about shortages and supply chain problems i was aware of this going back to last year I, it, it, this was not this was not a, a new phenomena that was that was uh, being built up and joe biden staged a zoom conference where the only takeaway from it was that joe biden was the only person in the room to not know what the hell was going on and that everybody below him knew about it and failed to tell him about it it it, it was just it was spectacular incompetence. Oh yeah, spectacular incompetence. So they send out Karine Jean Pierre to the to the press briefing room. Speaking who is, of, yeah, who, it's just it's just well, I know what he just got done saying, but I don't have any information on that. I, I mean, it was it was embarrassing, but more embarrassing was the Tapper segment. We're not gonna replay it here. You can you can watch. Uh, Dwayne actually played quite a bit of it uh, last night on the after but, show. So but you yeah, the, you subscribe know, to yeah. that, but. The, the cool thing about this was at the end of this, Ed was saying, well, at least the good takeaway is media is starting to push back. And I said, boy, you led me right into this. In fact, this is what you should write about tomorrow morning. I said this last night. You did. And, and, and I played you and I played you Jake Tapper uh, trying to listen to the, you know, the, the, the White House spin line about, oh, we've been whole government approach from the very beginning. We've been we've been totally on this. And Jake Tapper's looking back like, are you kidding me? At one and, point, and, at one point, he does he does the you yeah, know, like, like come on, oh, man. come on, what? Seriously, you're you're gonna peddle this horse crap on me? Um, and and he wasn't buying he wasn't buying it at all. And so 
I, you know, I, I, I was able to play a couple of cuts that fed right into what Ed's point was. And I said, you ought to, you ought to do that. Uh, we, we do the, we do the stick every, every week. And this is how the sausage occasionally gets made. Not, it doesn't okay. happen often. Once in a blue moon, I actually call my shot of what Ed's going to write about the, uh, the next morning. And damned if he didn't do it on air today. Every once in a while, all the stars align and we do, we, we, we get that done. So, uh, yeah, this, I mean, this is, um, this is a spectacular uh, self-owned. And, and I, I got to tell you, it's not just Tapper, right? It's not just a couple of the other people in the, um, in the briefing room other than Ducey. I'm watching the, I'm watching the scroll on the. Uh, oh, Phil Wegeman from, from uh, Real Clear Politics. Uh, Washington Post. And O'Keefe from CBS News. Lots of, uh, lots of reporters were going. Nora O'Donnell from, uh, from uh, uh, she, uh, NBC was, was, was yep. doing this too. And, and the big and story, listen- the big story yesterday, Biden didn't know about this until April. <laughs> I mean, it's and, and everybody's like, so I mean, Peter Ducey, Peter Ducey, God love him. He went, he, he went to, uh, he, Hugh said he hit for the cycle yesterday. He, he pounded Biden, he pounded uh, Kareem Jean Pierre. He told Kareem Jean Pierre, look, somebody in the West Wing at some point along this process, somebody had to get the report from the FDA and or HHS that this was a problem. And somebody decided, okay, it's now reached the threshold. We have to bring the president in on this. Who was that person and what date was that done? And they can't uh, answer the question. They don't have an answer right. to that question. Well, and, I, I don't have that time. <clears throat> and, you know, Brian Deese is on there with Jake Tapper saying, well, you know, once once this did get to that level, then it was a whole of government response. And this is, of course, Jake Tapper's thing. Whole of government apparently doesn't include the one guy the who can actually who can actually do issue something the about Defense it. Production Act order. Yeah. But but let's be the only guy that can do something about it. I mean, even the timeline here is suspect. Right. Because Biden saying, well, I found out about it in, in April. Well, then why did it take until mid-May for the White House to do anything about it? And it, it, why was the first thing it did about it was to put out a lame website with uh, with the um, customer service numbers and nothing else? By the way, the website didn't didn't do a damn didn't do a damn thing for people. All it did was tell them to call the manufacturers and ask if they had any stock. And the manufacturers all said, was- "If we had stock, it'd be." <laughs> Be right. on the shelves. It, we want to sell it was it. it was it was as worthless as a tit on a turnip, right? Yes. I mean it, it, it didn't do anything constructive. It was it was the, the equivalent of what the talking heads were, were were getting out of the White House staff, which is well, if you're short, just go to your doctor. Your doctor will give you samples. Yeah, samples. Yeah. <laughs> the doctors doctors were all around the country going, We don't have samples. And besides which what's that? Where, where do those, one meal? Where do those where and where do those samples come from? They come from the, the manufacturers that are that are shut down yeah. and, and, and out it's of stock. Idiotic. It's idiotic. So then they issue the Defense Production Act, and as I write this morning, you know, to try to sort of extend thoughts on this, the Defense Production Act is useless too. The problem isn't that they're not making formula. The problem is that they don't have the precursors because of supply chain issues. And right. then the alternate problem here, the other problem here, is that we're blocking imports 
for stupid protectionist reasons. The FDA doesn't like the labels on European formula, and we don't want Canada to sell their formula in the United States to protect Abbott and the, and the other domestic manufacturers. If they wanted to solve the problem, you wouldn't need to load up planes in, um, send planes to Europe to load up on formula. The 3.7 bottles. 3.7 bottles. Boy, United, those, those damn middle seats in coach. They, they can't even put a full bottle in apparently that's apparently they can't do that but if you if you dropped those protectionist uh issues uh those barriers it would be the manufacturers in Europe that would be putting their stuff on their own planes and bringing it into the United Look, states and, and 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 why do we and why do we spend so much time on this baby formula press conference because well, the overall scheme of things it's not the end of the world well I mean it is for parents I mean it, it, it is it, it is it is for a for a section of the country I'm not a very large section of the country actually I, I I understand that but what I'm saying is is it's a microcosm yeah of this entire administration it's, it's emblematic when, of the incompetence of this administration when they entirely say, reactive when they say we've got gas we're, we're we're on it with gas prices we're on it with food shortages we're on it with uh, fighting inflation we've got we've got a plan to be able to, to to counter this this runaway inflation no they don't no they don't know what they're doing they're entirely reactive and it's and this it, is the reason it, why they're in these problems in the first place all you have to do is extrapolate what was on display yesterday. And this team couldn't, they could not manage their way out of a paper sack if they had a compass and a flashlight. Yep. Yep. All right. So be sure to catch up with that. And, you know, we had a, a very long discussion of this last night on Dwayne's show. We're not going to. 27 gonna... video cuts yes. we played of this, of, yes. the, of this debacle. So, so if you're not already subscribing to the, uh, to, to the after and it was... of the universe, you should subscribe and just just for the sheer and fun it, of watching this. And, thing and, it, and it was it was riotously funny. It was some, it at, was spectacular. At, at, at places, yes. It was spectacular. Yeah, you know, this is the reason why Dwayne and I do this. You know, politics is a serious business. Both of us take it seriously. But my goodness, there's just so much so many opportunities for for having fun with this stuff. And that's part of what the universe is about. That's part of what this podcast is about. Uh, I want right. to I want to transition though to uh, uh, the other big story this week, which is the the policy responses to the uh, mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which is, you know, not too far from, you know, it's, it's not too close either, but it's, uh, you know, in my state. Um, that pretty much describes all of Texas. Not too much, close, not too far. Yeah, pretty much, which is one of the reasons why I like Texas. Um, but <laughs> nothing's too close, nothing's too far. Um, but the policy responses here are sort of all over the place. You've got Joe Biden and Kamala Harris agitating for an assault weapons ban. The House is apparently going to pass one, while Senate Democrats don't want to talk about an assault weapons ban because they're trying to do something with Republicans that will actually pass in the Senate. And they're, so they're focusing on some red flag laws, which I'm skeptical that can be done effectively as well as constitutionally, uh, but also school safety issues, federal, federal support for school safety issues and, and that sort of thing. Um, Chris Murphy, John Cornyn appear to be the lead negotiators for each of the two parties. Um, I, I think John Cornyn is somebody who can be trusted to, to manage that on behalf of the Republicans. I'm curious right. to see where this is going to end up. And I don't know what you're hearing on this. I know Mitch McConnell is encouraging negotiations to get to get to a point where both parties can be on board with, with some sort of legislative response that has some sort of connection 
to the Ovalde shooting. Some sort of connection won't be won't be background checks so because this kid passed a background check. Right. I think you're I think you're overestimating what uh, which what Mitch McConnell is is getting out of this. I think okay. Mitch McConnell is doing this for the optics of we're at least trying to negotiate in good faith. So it's performative. Think, it's performative. I there's think, not going to be anything coming out of this. I don't think there's going to be anything that comes out of this. You know, it, it, it I don't know that there. I don't know that there's anything on the federal level that would make an impact on this. Correct. I. I Unless you do something like a national database of um, some kind of a red flag national database where, you know, teachers that uh, that that know a kid is going to be a problem because they've had him in fifth grade and then another teacher in, in sixth grade had a problem with a kid. And you and you've got some kind of a you've got some kind of a database where, um, you know, the problem kids uh, start start to. Well, and here's, yeah, here's the know? problem with that. The problem with this, and I was, I was talking it about this. Messy. Well, the problem with it is that we don't have a mental health commitment infrastructure that we did no. 50 years ago. And, and it's messy to it's messy to it's, set one up. But that would almost certainly have to be done at the federal level, just because yes. of the just because of the federal issues that it would involve. You, Congress would have to be involved in it. It would be expensive. It would be messy. And you'd have to find a way to make sure that you don't allow the abuses that led us to demolish that infrastructure in the early to mid 1970s um, all over again. But the problem is, is that something like that is necessary. And the reason why it's necessary is not just because of a few of these mass shootings where you had people who were clearly dangerous, clearly mentally ill, and there was no law enforcement response to it. Um, and that's true in both Parkland and Uvalde. And, and others, for that matter. I think it, it was true in Sandy Hook as well. Um, and without that, the background check system doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, right. I, it, it, we can talk about expanding background checks, but, 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 but the Parkland shooter passed a background check because they didn't do – there was no law enforcement follow-up on him. The, um, the Uvalde shooter passed a background check for the same reason, even though he's posting videos about killing people and raping people and apparently uh, mutilating animals. Um, right. It, it, and in bags of dead in. cats. And, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. he's holding, yeah, I mean, there was, there were so many red flags on this, you'd think it was a Soviet march through Red Square. Same thing with right. Brooklyn. But, but, but here's the problem. We, we both admit it's going to be messy. And if it's messy it, and, and you've got a 50-50 Senate. <laughs> yeah, Congress isn't going to do it. Those, those two things don't go together, no. especially in an election year. So... We talked to Rick Scott out of Florida. This I, 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 I've got two. I don't know how much time we've got left, but we've, I've got two two tracks. I want to I want to address on this. Okay. Number one, on a personal level, on Memorial Day weekend, on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, uh, my wife and I got together with our next door neighbors, our best friends in the world. We're we're very good friends with our neighbors. And they had family over as well. There was probably 20, 25 people there. We all had the Memorial Day barbecue. Everybody's there. And I mean, every possible ideological and, and, uh, and ethnic makeup was there and represented. We had everything from a Vietnam era vet that is a staunch old time liberal and his, and his second wife. There was a same sex couple there. 
There, uh, there is a British national uh, who has lived here for, you know, three decades, who um, thinks that neither party is worth a damn and all they're there is to, to, to keep themselves in power and they're never going to do anything. And he's just kind of a, a cynic about the whole thing. You've got me, who is a fairly staunch conservative. You've got teachers represented. I mean, they're right. every they're, the whole spectrum's there, right? Right. And uh, I was told we're not going to bring up politics because of this. So naturally, politics came up. Of course it did, yes. And so, you know, we're all talking about the shooting. And I said, okay, let's see if we can have a debate amongst our little group here, as diverse as we are, what can we all agree on? We have what the problem says. The problem said is you have an active shooter on school. Forget about what caused it. We can have that debate. That can, That's a generational issue to solve anyway. Right. Now that you've got an active shooter situation and it's ongoing, how do you how do you address this so kids don't get killed next time? And what what are some things we can do? And everybody agreed on basically two two things, maybe a third. One is everybody agreed that at 18, it's probably not smart to let kids buy guns. And there should be some kind of a adjustment to that. And now, now let, let me come okay. back to vision. All right. I've got a response to that too, but okay. I, I know. I know. Now let me circle back to this because here's how we get there. The second thing that we all agreed on is you've got to, you have to arm the schools, not, not necessarily yeah. teachers, but you've got, got to, to harden the schools own. at very least harden the schools. Yeah. You, you've got to harden the schools and everybody agrees on this, except right. of course, Corinne Jean-Pierre, who basically shit can the whole idea and basically stuck a monkey wrench in, in the negotiations by saying we wouldn't support that. It's insane. They're not serious. Right. The third that the third thing that we agreed on, and I, I think the last thing we agreed on is some kind of a, a registry or database where teachers could safely report the problem students that they know are going to be a problem. My wife had a student five or uh, five years ago in fifth grade or fourth grade and she said as soon as that kid was out of her class she's like that kid is going to become a, a school shooter someday you, you just they're, they're you you deal with kids every day you just know that kid is now going to be a junior in high school and everybody's worried about this kid everybody knows that this kid is off right right who you know there's got to be a way to be able to report that and 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 have some kind of a mechanism where that kid has to go through some kind of an extra screen before he turns 18 and 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 buys a weapon so that's something we could all agree on congress could do that too there is, there is a path forward to something that that would have some consensus right but they're not going to get there because the margins aren't going to let them right do that. Yeah, yeah now yeah. rick scott senator of, of florida used to be governor of florida he was a governor during Parkland when, when that massacre happened. In the wake of Parkland, what did he do? What reforms did he put in, in Florida? Number one, he hardened the schools. There are SROs. There are, there are cops on campus. Right. The Better trained SROs, too, because there was a cop on campus at Parkland. Yes, too. yes, yes. Better trained and more and more of them. And he funded it. Right. Which, right. You know, it's now part of the state's budget. He funded it. The next thing he did is he did try to establish some kind of a registry where teachers can report problem students and that there is some kind of a, 
of a, a, a psycho valve uh, that that pops up when kids try to do uh, try to get guns when they're 18. When it comes to the 18, I'm going to. This is where I circle back on this. I pulled a Jen Psaki. Here's what they did in. Here's what they did in Florida. And to me, this is intriguing. And this, I think, keeps it constitutional. If you're an 18 year old kid and you want to buy a gun, you can own the gun. There's no restriction of, about owning one. You can own a weapon at 18 legally. If you want to go buy one at 18, you just have to bring a parent until you're 21. Yeah, you have to bring I, I don't think. To, I, I think if that gets challenged, it, it gets overturned. I, I mean, it's, the Ninth Circuit. Not, the Ninth Circuit threw out California's restriction on 18 to 21 year olds just, I think, last week on the basis of it not being constitutional because. This is a constitutional right that accrues to somebody as soon as they become a full citizen, which is at the the age of adulthood. And the age of adulthood is set in the Constitution for voting at 18. And you can't right. reconcile those two things. So then, then how do you explain gambling and, and, because, and smoking? Because gambling and smoking aren't guaranteed rights in the Constitution. I mean, that's pretty easy. But you're, but you're still an adult. It doesn't matter. There's all sorts of restrictions on adults. But not on their, not on access to constitutional rights. But the constitutional rights are they can't own a gun. They can own a gun. The provision is no, no, no. To parent- no, the provision that you're talking about, and and I mean, I don't know what the status of this is. I don't even know if anybody's bothered to challenge this. Nobody's nobody's but, challenged but, it. But if they do, it's probably not going to hold up because you are treating somebody as um, as some sort of second class citizen if you require an adult to produce a parent <laughs> in but, order to access the right. This, except that, except there is also due process backup to that in Florida, where if a kid doesn't have a parent to do it. He can ask for and receive both uh, both a uh, law enforcement and a judicial review, and if the you don't the, get you don't get law enforcement and judicial review for access to constitutional rights. I'm telling you that this is a basic problem, and and the, the Ninth Circuit of all places recognized this in California's law. There are lots of things that you can do, but you can't single out that class of 18 to 21 year olds to to uh, put up special obstacles to access a constitutional right. This is the problem. Gambling, drinking, driving, all those things are not constitutional rights. The right to keep and bear arms is guaranteed in the Constitution to all citizens. I understand. It, it just is. I mean, and and because the, I think it was the, 25th, the 26th Amendment or the 27th Amendment set the voting age at 18, well, that's that's clearly the age at which uh, people get access to constitutional rights according to the Constitution. And that that type of provision, it sounds great. It's not going to stand up, nor, nor really well, should so, it. If, if, if we're going to be so, consistent so, about access to constitutional rights, nor so, really should it. So, so far, it has stood up. And I don't think it has even been challenged yet. And that has been in place for, for a few years Well, now. let me tell you what's going to happen when the Ninth Circuit's decision gets appealed to the Supreme Court. <laughs> we'll see. Five of, those we'll justice, see. five of those justices are going to write an opinion that says you can't restrict access to constitutional rights on the basis of, uh, on the basis of age when you're dealing the, with adults. The, the other provision there is if you are a if you're under 21 and you have uh, you have engaged in military service you are exempt from that you are exempt from that privilege yeah again or, or that that provision again i mean it's it's great politically but constitutionally it's incoherent 
And that's the reason why I have an issue with, with that approach. It, it's, it's not that I don't get why people see that as an issue. I'm telling you, constitutionally, it doesn't work. You can't do that. So you're going to have to find other ways of, of dealing with it. And the, the best way of dealing with that is to give law enforcement enough tools to identify people who are actual threats by their actions and which is to, where which to, is where that that database kind of comes in. Well, it's it's not just a database. You have to have you have to have prosecutors willing to 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 go forward with well, charges. Well, that that is that is clear too. Uh, right. But you you should you should have when you do the background check, it should be tied to it should be tied to something more than just a straight background check. You've got to be able to. You've got to be able to look scholastically to see if there's any red flags or. Well, stop not even, I mean, they, they did. A, they did a stop order in Florida. Uh, Doug Ducey, his one of his greatest regrets as governor of Arizona is he, he didn't get a stop order in, in Arizona. Right. It has to be done on the basis of due process, which means that you have to be able to to challenge the government before you get added to lists and that sort of thing. But the but the best way to do that is to make sure that those issues are. Uh, facilitated through courts and which which is the due process forum in which these things should be done and in order to to get that done you have to have law enforcement that's willing to arrest people for uh, these types of things you have to have prosecutors who are willing to prosecute people for these types of things and right. and you you start when they when they start really raising red flags if they violate the law in doing that you get that on the record and therefore, when you get to the background check stage, you can at least stop them from buying something legally. Now, whether they steal weapons after that is a, is another matter. But but at least you've at least you've made the background check process work rationally at that point. And, it's not working and, rationally and, because and, we don't prosecute people. And that's fair. But until you work out the messy side of it, the the neat side of it, the the, the easy side of it that everybody can agree on, and, and and could be standalone legislation, except the Democrats will never go along with it as a standalone, because they still want to confiscate guns and they want to ban something else and and try to negotiate. The clean, easy version of this is everybody knows you've got to harden the schools. Right. You you just yep. do. The problem is. The, the, the far left, the base of the Democratic Party still wants to defund the police. That's exactly the opposite of what right. they claim. They the, and and to they do. want to elect prosecutors who won't prosecute. This is the right. Chester so, Boudin thing. This is the this is the, um, the, you know, the George Gascon thing. It's the uh, guy who's in New York City at the moment. Right. Atlanta, so, Illinois. They're 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 electing people who won't prosecute. And if you're electing people so, who won't prosecute, you're not going to be able to stop stuff because this stuff just snowballs. That's exactly right. So, so when you've got that, when you've got that in place as a tenant of the modern day Democratic Party, when they, when they, when they, you know, cry all these crocodile tears after each one of these school shootings, and they say, "Well, we just have to seize guns," they're they're just not going to be serious. About well, it's not serious. It's 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 fundamentally unserious. You know, banning AR-15s. There's millions of AR-15s out there. There's there's no way you're going to ban an AR-15. There's no way no. that that holds up. And and so the idea that you're going to run around spending time on something that is a not going to work and b can't hold up anyway just says just shows how unserious people are about this. It's, it's, it goes back to where we started this right. discussion. It's performative. It's performative. It's all performative. Now speaking of performative, just briefly, Charlie Chris yesterday. <laughs> 
pledged that he was going to ban assault weapons in Florida uh, by executive order on his first day in office. I don't know if you saw that. That which uh, which will be which will be on the on the seventh of never. <laughs> well, he's not going to get elected anyway. But that, that's you what can't, I'm saying. You can't it, it, do that by EO. It would. I mean, you can certainly pass an assault weapons ban at the state level. There's a hand, I think seven states have one right now. California Charlie Chris one. inauguration day will be the seventh of never on in the year of our Lord. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah, but I just find it amusing that a guy who's talking about being governor wants to get himself elected dictator. Dictator. Yeah. He's Char- Charlie Chris. Charlie Chris is. He, he outed himself for the fool he is a long time. Yes, ago. yes, yes. He's 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 an he's a panderer. He's a fool. He's also entirely performative, and that's what this is. I actually have a post about this just to just to settle the matter that you can't legislate by EO. Uh, he'd have to have that passed in the Florida legislature, which would also happen on the seventh of never in the year of our Lord. Uh uh-uh. uh. But is, is there is there truly any doubt amongst anybody? That Ron DeSantis is not going to get real. Oh, Ron DeSantis. Gonna, I I don't even think that um, I don't even think that uh, Chris is going to win the nomination, right? I mean, uh, he's still running against Nikki Fried for the nomination. I don't think they've had their primary in Florida yet, have they? I they they haven't had their primary, and and that's and that's a that's a crazy fest. Yeah, that's, on on on, 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 the, the on the Democratic side, it's a crazy fest. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, last topic, because I know we got to let you go here pretty quickly, but uh, today was the. Uh, Platinum Jubilee for for Queen Elizabeth II. You know, I am not a fan of the monarchy. I do have a lot of respect for Queen Elizabeth II, just simply because she's put up with this job for 70 years. And yes. I, I think there's some level of achievement there um, in, a, in a thankless job that has got, well, I, I wouldn't say thankless job. It's, it's a pretty cushy job. But um, I think that overall, she personally has tried to muscle through that in very trying times and about with about as much dignity as was probably possible um even though her passel of brats are just like the worst <laughs> and, um Hugh and, Hugh and, and, and i were Hugh and i had the had the jubilee on in the background this morning oh, and uh Hugh's on the air and he says when's our platinum jubilee i said well that would be july 10th 2070 he said, have you given any consideration for what the show's going to sound like that day? And I said, yeah, it'll be awfully quiet. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be 104 and you'd be about 114. It's, a, it's, it's actually the embodiment of dead air. <laughs> yeah, it, it'd be awfully quiet. It'd, it'd be a very still show that day. Literal dead air is what that show will um, sound like in, uh, on its 70th so, anniversary. So we're, so we're watching this Jubilee, right? And I'm watching the balcony scene where you've got um, you've got the Queen doing the doing the this, and you've got the the, the two little brats and Kate next to uh, her wearing the big white hat, and then you've got Prince Chuck in his sailor suit to 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 uh, her right, right, and Prince Chuck is standing there watching with with all the medals on his on his shirt for. What, I, I have no idea what the hell he got his medals for, for being Chuck, right? Right. And so he's, and, and and he's the he's the British Al Gore. He is the British John Kerry, right? He's right. Mr. Enviro. He wants to take our carbon footprint down to nothing, right? Right. 
And he's watching this military jet flyover for the Jubilee uh, celebration. They've just done a 41 cannon um, salute, which those things belched out a whole bunch of smoke when those things went off 41 times. I don't know where that smoke went, but I'm sure that smoke was, wasn't just steam, right? I'm, it I'm was, sure it wasn't, yeah. I, I'm sure it wasn't. But then I look up in the sky, and what do I see? What what do they fly? Tornadoes? What's what's? I think the, it's the, tornadoes. Yeah, I think it's tornadoes. Okay, so I see nine tornadoes, all in a in a in a in a in a arc, and in they're flying in in a V pattern. And the three on the left are have red smoke. The three in the middle have white smoke. The three in the uh, right have have blue smoke. And they're all flying all the way from the Seychelles. God, I don't know who knows where they came from, but they're flying all the way over. And I'm looking at that going, what's the carbon footprint of this of, of today? What's how is this how, how is this actually manifesting itself in in, in Chuck's desire to uh, take Great Britain down to, to zero emissions? Um, I don't know, but I know how we can avoid it in the future. <laughs> Honestly, though, I mean, I mean, you, uh, there's a New York Times, big New York Times thing this morning about how, you know, the uh, Republicans, small R Republicans are are trying to organize in the UK to get rid of the monarchy as even as this jubilee is underway. But, I at this point, I don't even mind the monarchy. It's 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 kind of quaint and whatever else. But if um, well, it if, does serve if, a function. It serves a function it, to provide to provide a head of state that is set aside from partisan politics yes and 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 isn't every i mean truly isn't everybody rooting for elizabeth to make it at least until chuck goes the way of all things yeah i i don't, don't think it's don't, going to doesn't, happen doesn't everybody want to skip chuck and go and just go straight to william you know i there's been discussions about that william's going to be what like 30 something years old right i mean he was what 14 or 13 I, when diana died so he's got to be why, close to 40 years old why why don't why, why don't we go with him instead of a 72 year old um goober eating uh weirdo uh because i suspect that william is probably just as much of a goober eating weirdo as his dad but uh, they're all goober eating weirdos. I mean, which which one of those royals do you do you see as being uh, the the hope of the future of the monarchy? I don't see a, I don't see any of them being Kate. hope. Kate Milton. <laughs> yeah, she's except, at least she at least seems relatively normal uh, because she's an in law. Because she's an in law, right? They brought her in for the genes. <laughs> yes. Because because they decided they needed some other ones out 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 of the out of the family tree that's basically a stick. They yeah. they needed they wanted a branch. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the Bidens. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. All right. On that note, we gotta we gotta leave. But what's coming up tomorrow on the Hugh Hewitt Show? Uh, tomorrow on the Hugh Hewitt Show, we are going to have a discussion with Dr. Larry Arn uh, about the probably the gun debate and who knows what else we're going to talk about. But we're we're going to talk to uh, Larry Arn, um, which we do every Friday, and then we are also going to um, have a discussion with Sunny Bunch. My guess is we're going to kind of talk about the Top Gun movie, which uh, has made a ton of money. Um, yeah, I actually want to uh, see that. 
It looks uh, looks looks pretty promising. Uh, Alfredo Ortiz of Job Creators Alliance will be on as well, um, and um, I think it's going to be probably the last day that we cover the gun stuff because if you actually look at the news coverage, it's kind of going by the wayside day by day, and it's everybody's moving on to gas prices and inflationary stuff because that's yep. what's affecting people a lot more right that's that's what's that's the lived experience the daily lived experience of the american household is always going to be the priority especially when that lived experience is a crisis as it is with things like baby formula and inflation in los angeles there is a chevron station in downtown la that is its marquee sign has eight dollar gas in la yep $8 it'll, gas. it'll be ten dollars by the end of summer I think so, too. It'll be $10 a gallon by the end of summer. So, all right, Dwayne, Generalissimo Patterson, the Hugh Hewitt Show, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, 5 a.m. in God's Time Zone, 3 a.m. on the left coast. Thanks for being with us, as always, sir. We will talk to you next week. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, folks, stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Americans deserve a real debate on violence and school safety in the wake of yet another school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Unfortunately, our leaders have fallen back onto their talking points and rank demagoguery, preferring to stoke fear rather than produce real solutions. The perpetrator in Uvalde had a long track record of actionable behavior before the shooting. Police had been called to deal with him in the past. He had posted videos threatening to rape and or kill others and had been, quote, especially violent towards women. Had he been prosecuted or committed for his prior behavior, a background check would have prevented him from purchasing the firearms he used to kill nearly two dozen people. Vigorous enforcement of existing laws and better tools to deal with mental illness are essential to community safety. Instead, Joe Biden offers hysterical nonsense about high-caliber 9mm firearms, which were not even used in this instance, and Congress debates gun bills that would have changed nothing in this or any other mass shooting. If we want change, we need leadership to change. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. I am very honored to introduce to you my guest today, uh, Father Robert Sirico, uh, who is co-founder of the Acton Institute, as well as a, a, an accomplished author, accomplished uh, media analyst, and the author of a new book by Regnery, of course, Regnery being a unit of Salem, as we are here as well, The Economics of the Parables. And this is a book that's coming out this week, uh, and uh, and you can pre-order it now. Um, don't, don't wait for it to hit your bookshelves. Go ahead and pre-order, get it going. Uh, Father Sirico, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the Acton Institute does such great work on economics anyway. And and I know that, the, you know, you're co-founder of the Acton Institute. Uh, I know about the Acton Institute. In fact, when I was in Rome, I, I ran into a few people that were involved in the Acton Institute, which is great. Mm -hmm. But maybe we have you can an start, office there. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Maybe you can start off by just telling us a little bit about the Acton Institute before we get into the book. Well, it was founded 32 years ago by myself and the co-founder, Chris Mowron, who is now the president. I'm the uh, president emeritus. Uh, and it was basically to do what I'm attempting to do in the economics of the parables, to create a dialogue between the market 
and uh, moral uh, values and theological insights, uh, a kind of translation, if you will, between the two, because people think these are completely separate. So to do that, we started the Institute, we hold conferences, we produce books and uh, videos more more and more. We've just done a, a new um, documentary on the whole situation in Hong Kong. So that's really what it is to kind of get uh, bring uh, informed economic thinking to good intentions. And the economics of the parables is, is exactly that effort as well. You go over the 13 parables that speak in, in, in part, at least, to economics. And, you know, with recognizing, of course, that there's a lot more than economics going on in the gospel. But Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, we, we see people trying to draw lessons. And usually it's more or less the lessons that they want to draw for their own purposes yeah. from from parables and also from from acts and i mean we can get into that i'm sure that's you know that's not a parable but um we can get into that no but but the last part of the book i deal with a lot of these other economic things themes that run through the new testament that aren't parables and i do deal with the acts of the apostles in there as well but yeah. you're, you're it's important to start by understanding that i am not saying that the purpose of the parables is to teach economics right economics as an intellectual discipline comes later in history but what jesus does is use very practical um, instances from human life and then show the kingdom of god the transcendent kingdom of god from this reality and the backdrop of it is that he's making a lot of assumptions about economics that uh, i think uh, advocates of the free free economy would share so let's start there. I mean, what what uh, assumptions, <clears throat> excuse me, do you see in the in these parables that Jesus teaches that um, that have that sort of understanding that free free market economics is a is the healthier direction for human economics? I think it's uh, you know in a real way it's the more natural and right. and that underscores the durability of the parables themselves that in in using these examples of market activity or contracts or private property. Jesus is using the natural state of affairs that occurs in the world of scarcity. Scarcity is what gives rise to the necessity to allocate resources. If we didn't have scarcity, uh, we wouldn't have economics. There'd be no need for it. You wouldn't have to put a price on anything because you'd have, you could wait it out. <laughs> there's no, right. there's no but on your time or resources, you wouldn't have to uh, kind of produce or draw from the earth resources that would serve human needs. So all of this is there in the parables uh, and uh, supply and demand and contracts and labor shortages and productivity. And uh, all of these are in, in various um, parts of the parables. Right. And I mean, it gets, I mean, the parables talk about inheritance, you know, for instance, yeah. and, and, uh, and the role of stewards um, yes. rather than the role of ownership and wealth, which I think is actually one of the best ways of looking at, at, um, at property and um, a relationship to, to wealth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we're entrusted with something and you see that in the, the parable of the, the the bad steward right know, yes rip off his master uh but you also see it in in for instance the the stewardship of the um uh 
the wealth that that is entrusted to the the workers in the vineyard or the talents uh, to are, are they're given stewardship of money and they're asked to be productive with. Uh, stewardship is really our relationship for the whole world. And the parables are trying to use this world to point to a world that goes beyond this world. Right. And, and it's the reason why I think sometimes people get lost in the um, literal uh, meaning of the parables, right? I mean, and, and this is this you're asking people to go beyond the literal here to consider oh, yeah. to consider yeah. you know, what what this first off, what it meant historical i mean this is sort of like the four different ways to to um, to read gospel anyway literally historically historically you know theologically and that's uh, saint augustine yeah. right exactly and you frustrate yourself by looking at uh the parables and thinking well now what about this or that detail of it because you're missing the point the point isn't the story the ambiguity of the story sometimes is precisely the point to get you to think more deeply and think of what the implications are for your life and for your response to whatever it happens to be, to the call of the gospel or to human needs or whatever. Well, that brings us to a, a more basic question, and I'll just I'll just put this out here right now before we get back into the book, which is the question of why Jesus spoke in parables at all, right? And this question comes up in the gospels. There are times when the when when the disciples are asking this question too. And he says, you are given better understanding of this basically for a reason, uh, but right. I need to teach in this manner. And so I think that goes to your point about the, necess the necessity of that ambiguity, the necessity of people being able to unpack this for themselves. Also, he says, let, he has this very intriguing phrase, let him that has ears hear. Because uh, yes. he's speaking in a volatile context, you know, in some of these contexts, people are waiting to trip him up. And he uh, kind of cloaks what he's saying in a way that those who really aren't interested in the truth of this thing aren't going to hear what he's really saying about it. And so he entrusts it. But I think uh, another reason, and this distinguishes the parables from things like fables, uh, these, this is not fantasy. This is the stuff of real life. Yep. And it's also what gives the durability of it. Because people, after all, still go fishing, they still plant seeds, they still uh, engage in contracts, they still have bills to pay. Uh, all of these things still exist, and that's why they're so, it's so durable that we can grasp what Jesus is saying and uh, kind of apply it to our own circumstance. So getting back into the book, and the book is The Economics of the Parables by Father Robert Sirico, who's here with us right now. Uh, my friend Peter Grandich, who's a Catholic uh, econo uh, economist, he's somebody who appears regularly both on my podcast and on Relevant Radio, he's a great guy, is, yes. is, is very much, his, his, his main message now is about debt and the uh, gospel uh, warnings about debt. And what the uh, you know how how debt is never looked at well in the scriptures. What what do the parables tell us about debt and and you know how do they speak to that? Well, of course, uh, we're all indebted in one way or another, right? right now, right. the particular um, uh, parables here, particular lessons about debt. I'm thinking of the the story of the 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 men who received. Uh, the one who, both, both, I'm sorry, there are two men who 
are indebted to a king and they can't pay. Right. And the king forgives them both uh, or forgives the one. And that one goes and holds the other one who's indebted to him to a greater uh, standard. In other words, it's not as generous. So uh, I think what your economist friend is getting to is a different point. And that is the fact that when we are in debt, uh, what we are spending on, what we are living on is the generosity uh, of another person. We're living on somebody else's property. So we should even be more careful with what we have inherited from that person, what we borrowed from that person than our own. Uh, you know, we can be frivolous with our own resources, but you, you don't have the right, the moral right to be frivolous with somebody else's resources. So there's a bond of trust there as well. And then there are uh, other forms of debt that might not be immediately thought of as debt. And I'm thinking of the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. The, yes. the, takes his inheritance. Uh, that's a form of debt. He has a debt to his father now. Uh, if it's nothing more than a moral debt. And it's interesting in that parable, because he goes and he squanders what he has, and he comes back, and it's the older son who is really ticked off because he says, you know, I've been here all this time slaving for you, and you've never let me have the fatted calf, and you've never let me have a party for my friends. And it's interesting to see that both of these sons are looking at the father in a very similar way. I mean, neither of them come out looking good. I know a lot of people feel bad for the, the, the older son uh, because, you know, I mean, he was there the whole time. But it, it really is kind of like um, a lesson in gratitude. And it, it, we call it the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the, the parable of the benevolent, benevolent or the loving father. Because what we're trying to do is take both of his sons and bring them in, bring them together, uh, reconcile them to his own love. And those are forms of debt. Father, I'm really glad you brought up the older brother because I've always found the older brother to be the most fascinating part of the parable of the of the he prodigal is. son. And, and he's the one who's still on the outside at the end. By the way, this is the ambiguity of the Gospels. It doesn't end. We don't really know what the end of that was. Does he come in? Doesn't he come in? You know, you can imagine it both ways. You can imagine him brooding in the darkness, uh, all by himself and isolated, finding himself in the same position as his younger brother was in in the pigsty. Or you can Im imagine him just letting it go and coming in and embracing his brother. You know, I say that um, the struggle there is uh, he suffered from uh, Italian Alzheimer's. It's where you <laughs> think, but, but the grudge. <laughs> and you can destroy yourself with that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And and I I mean there's lots of different paths. I can say that, that because I'm an Italian. That wasn't a hate crime. No, well, I'm I'm Italian on my mother's side. Really, I am Italian on my mother's side. So I, I am I am right there with you on that, uh, Father Sirico. Um so let's get a little bit more into I mean, I could go on this one parable. Maybe we'll just come sure, back and do a sure. podcast on just this one parable because I've just got all right. sorts of thoughts. But I want to really get to the book, The Economics of the Parables, that um that is coming out this week. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the parable of the talents, right? Because I think this is also a parable 
that people have difficulty um, grasping. Tell us a little bit about what the economics of this are and how the economics sort of unpacks this, this parable. Well, the basic story here, because a number of the parables are told in various gospels. So right. we get confused and parable of the talents is told one way in one gospel, one way in another. But the basic line of thought is the um, owner comes and leaves resources with these servants. Uh, in the one, uh, he leaves five talents. By the way, that word talent is an economic unit. Today, we understand it in our common usage. It's a gift that we have, an ability that we have. But originally, we, this is where we get the word talent from, from the scriptures. So he entrusts the these monetary units to these three, five, two, and one. And he goes off and they go out the two of them go out and are productive and they double the income. The one hides the money. Now it's important to understand that he doesn't lose the money, right? He hides it. He buries it. And when the master comes back, you have this dialogue. He, he, you know, celebrates the productivity of the first two, but he comes to the other one. He's very harsh with them. And he says, what did you do? You could have, even if you just put it in the bank and got some, some interest on it, you could have done something with it, but you didn't. And here's what's very intriguing. It's the response of this one, what he says, why he didn't do it. And I think it, in a way, um, exemplifies the attitude that much of the socialist ideology has uh, toward free commerce toward investment and productivity because first he says i was afraid and you know if you don't have a sense of risk aversion or i'm sorry if you if you don't put aside risk aversion you can't be successful in a market so this man is afraid and he's afraid because of his perception of who the master is i knew you were a cruel man gathering where you have not sown and gathering where you had not scattered. So what he's saying is, I knew that you exploit people. You, you're not really productive. You gather things. And this is exactly what Marx's accusation is against uh, entrepreneurs or, or capitalists. So he has this, this mentality. Uh, what I think, and getting to the, the point I men mentioned earlier about the ambiguity of these parables and some, most all of them have some part of it that you don't, it's not quite told. I wonder what would have happened had the master come back and the two who were productive said, look, we invested your money and these looked like great investments, but they failed. What would have happened? Yeah. Uh, the master's reaction have been uh, to that. And, and I think because what we very often forget is that not every market failure is a moral failure. If you've done your due diligence and you've done the best you can do and a storm comes and destroys the, the buildings, for instance, or, you know, this disrupts the supply lines, that's not a moral failure on your part. And I think that's a, an important lesson against the prosperity gospel preachers, because the prosperity gospel preachers say that wealth is a sign that God is blessing you. And I don't, I don't believe that. Right. Uh, 
you know, uh, it's in a, in, in a way, the prosperity gospel is the flip side of liberation theology. Uh, liberation theology demonizes uh, wealth and prosperity gospel canonizes uh, wealth. And so the, these are two erroneous approaches to economics and, and theology. Both, right. And uh, um, prosperity gospel tends to demonize poverty, too. I should, I also, I'm sorry, did I say demonize wealth? Demonize poverty, yes. No, no, you said you said canonize wealth. So I'm just I'm just yeah, yeah, providing right. the parallel to that. Yeah, which is exactly. you know, which is clearly not the message that Jesus is sending in the Gospels. You know, it's, it's 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 about serving the poor. It's about serving the needy, which, you know, brings right. us again back to the parables where you have, yes. um, you know, significant teachings here about caring for the poor. I and mean, we're not just talking about the Good Samaritan, we're talking about a number of these parables. Right. The Good Samaritan is another another great one, you know. Right. Uh, this man who invests himself personally in the uh, care of someone whose body is broken, whose life is in danger. And it's interesting that the Good Samaritan, that Jesus holds up this man who's an outsider socially, but is also a businessman because he's he's going on this road to Jericho back and forth. He's known by the innkeeper uh, and he's willing to invest himself personally. You have this this sense of his physical embrace of this man, lifting him up, putting him on his own animal, taking him to the inn and in effect, giving the credit card to the innkeeper and say, you take care of him. Uh, and if you spend any more than this. Uh, I'll make it up to you on my way back. So it's interesting that Jesus, this is antithetical in my mind uh, to the welfare state. This is the call for us to be personally, grittily involved uh, in in people's lives. You know, uh, on, on the question of wealth, by the way, a third of this book deals with other economic themes that you find in the New Testament. Uh, our friends at Regnery were surprised to see a full third of the book was dealing not with the parables. But I thought it was important as I was thinking it through. And, and one of the examples that I came up with, um, or that as I, as I was thinking, where, where do you see economics elsewhere in the New Testament? It's the call of the rich young ruler that you find in the gospel. It's very interesting because uh, as you think about that passage in most people's minds, there are a lot of assumptions that we have. For instance, one of the assumptions is that the first thing Jesus says to him is, give away all your property. That's not what Jesus says. The first thing Jesus says to this man is, sell all that you have. Yep. And then give to the poor. It doesn't even say give it all to the poor, but let's say it's all to the poor. If this man is going to really benefit the poor, he's going to have to be successful in negotiating the sale in the liquidation of his property. So this shows you the, the way you become a good servant is to be uh, a good negotiator. But right. then, go ahead. I was going to say, that gets us back to stewardship, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's part of it. It's a very subtle part of it. People miss it. But then you get the most famous, I think probably one of the most famous uh, metaphors uh, in the New Testament, how hard it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And this shocks the disciples because they say to, to Jesus, well, then who can get into heaven? 
Now, whenever I'm asked this, this is the single most frequently asked question when I'm giving a lecture, is this camel in the eye of the needle? I always ask them, the, the interlocutor or the audience, what was the next thing Jesus says? When the disciples say, who can get into heaven? People don't remember. <laughs> All things are possible. All things exactly. Are possible. Yeah. Exactly. You're one of the rare ones who, who, who followed that. All the, oh, maybe you've read the book. <laughs> I, you know, occasionally, probably not enough, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, because it's only possible with God's grace, with his love. And that's the whole lesson. That's the gravamen of this story, is that you can't buy heaven. You can't trade your way into heaven. It, it has to come by grace, and that we're comes back to the question of stewardship. We're stewards of what we are entrusted with. So, getting to another part, you're talking about the 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 servant who hid the the single talent in the field and was chastised by by the um, Un unproductive. Uh, yeah, as unproductive. There's another parable where it's kind of celebrated that you, somebody hid a treasure in a field, right? It's this the parable of the hidden treasure in the field. And I love that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a great parable, but I am interested in seeing how you unpack that in terms of economics. Uh, well, the hidden treasure in the in the field is is interesting. To go back again to this question of the um, ambiguity that we see in these gospels because there's a lot that's not said. Uh, what is not said is, how did that treasure get into that field? Was it, was it just, and what was the treasure? Was it a, a, a bag of gold? Was it, you know, and then he goes and he buys, he sells everything he has and he buys the property. No, he doesn't just take the treasure. Right. He buys the property. And so there's that ambiguity gives us a lot to meditate on, a lot to think about. But one of the things that jumps out at me in terms of the economic uh, insights is that all of um, entrepreneurship is the process of discovery. What an entrepreneur does is discover um, a process whereby things that were there are combined perhaps in a slightly different way to create something that wasn't there before and that becomes useful to other people. Uh, that's really what economic profit is. It's, it's showing that you have been a servant to other people, that people value what you have done. So entrepreneurship as a discovery process. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's really key. Um, the treasure, of course, a treasure is very often spoken of in the scriptures as wisdom. Yep. And what, what this man is discovering is, is wisdom. Now, you could, if you were a socialist, say he's taking advantage of the market. He's taking advantage of the ignorance of the person who owned the field. And in a sense, that's right. But is that exploitative? Um, everyone who runs a restaurant is taking advantage of the hungry, hung, uh, the hunger of other people. Everyone who who uh, manufactures clothes is taking advantage of the nakedness of of people who come and buy those clothes. The question is, what the social benefit? If that man left the treasure in the ground, 
there would have been no social benefit to the hidden treasure. Right. That he takes it out of the ground and does it honestly by buying the uh, the property. That was going to be my point. Is it also shows the um, the requirement for proper investment, right? Because the the simplest thing would have been he found the hidden treasure in the field, plucked it out. And, you know, and, and took it with them, which would have been theft, right? In right. this case, right. if, if you're looking at it from an economic standpoint, anyway, this is somebody who actually went all in and investing in that mm -hmm. property so that he could he could morally, legally benefit from that treasure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's an, to your point, I think that's a very important aspect of the, the, that particular parable, yeah. There's another overlap of both the moral and the economic dimensions, and that would be what was required of this man was attentiveness and vigilance. Uh, and, and that applies both in our spiritual lives, which is, of course, the supreme point of these parables. It's, it what, tra it's what transcends this material world. But it also applies in, in the market. You have to be attentive to the market. You don't just throw your money out there and expect it to come back uh, multiplied. You have to see if these investments are solid investments. And so it's, I think you get this uh, this kind of overlap of both the practical and uh, that is the economic and the moral. Uh, Father Sirico, I've got one more quick question for you. I got actually, I have a guess for you here. You mentioned that the, the question you get asked most is the passage about how much more easy it is for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter right. the kingdom of heaven. May I guess that the second most common question you get asked in these presentations is um, why we shouldn't follow Acts of the, uh, Acts of the Apostles, at, which is not a parable, right. but you, you, you address no. this, um, and, uh, and, and simply just, divide all the, all the stuff between everybody and sort of uh, go in for communism or socialism. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what Marx thought. Marx thought that Act of the Apostles was primitive socialism. Uh, actually, I think it was Engels who, who said that. But uh, of course, it shows that neither of them were very good exegetes because they didn't <laughs> text. They're just taking, taking this one thing out of Acts 2, but they don't follow the whole line of uh, the thought because there's an example a little later on in Acts that says of where this is actually happening. They would come and deposit the money at the feet of the apostles. And among the people who were depositing the money were a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they owned a field. And they went out and they sold the field and they brought back a part of the money and deposited at the feet of the apostles. And St. Peter is the one who gives the capitalist defense, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with words now because right. capitalism didn't exist then, right? But St. Peter says, uh, when you sold the property, was it not your own? And after you sold it and acquired the money, did it not remain your own? In other words, he's affirming private property. This is your property. The problem is you lied right. to the Holy Spirit, and then they get their punishment. So uh, Peter himself <laughs> says, no, this was not socialism in the sense that socialism is coercive. Right. Not voluntary. Um, Churchill said that the socialism of of the early Christians, the Acts of the Apostles, said everything that is mine that I have is yours, and the modern socialist says everything that you have is mine. 
And this is this is the whole perversion of Christianity in the name of socialism. Well, Father Robert Sirico, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I could do this for another hour or so, but you've got other you, things Ed. to do. But Thank you. Acton Institute, where can, first off, where can people find Acton Institute? Acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org, and a plethora of material, films and books and conferences. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's great, Acton.org. And don't forget to pick up The Economics of the Parables by Father Robert Sirico. It's on sale, well, this week it's on sale. And, pre-order uh, pre-order uh, on um, Amazon, and you'll get it the same day as the bookstores will have it. There you go. You can beat the bookstores, which is... Don't you love capitalism? <laughs> I love capitalism. I absolutely love capitalism. Father Robert Sirico, thank you so much for being with us today. God bless, Ed. Thanks. God bless, sir. We'll be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show right after this. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you saw... Be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the Town Hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VIP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's On the Road Journalism, First Person Journalism, Journalism You Can Trust from the Border, from the Unrest in Cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.